So as always, thank you for joining me. Enjoy the podcast. Kick back and relax. The force is strong and is with us always. And never forget. We have hope. Rebellions are built on hope. of this moment the force is strong make ten men feel like a hundred we'll take the next chance and the next you're rebels on you Jesse, a.k.a. The Bizzle. Oh, The Bizzle, thank you. <laughs> the Bizzle? Thank you, The Bizzle. Yeah. The Bizzle. All right, ladies and gentlemen of The Bizzle cast, welcome to a very non-traditional Bizzle cast, a very non-traditional first episode of a new series of The Bizzle cast, which is the Bizzle cast book review, which I am coming up with a more exciting name for very soon. It might be the Bizzle cast knowledge drop, it might be the Bizzle cast rebel reading, or something along those lines. I'm still working on it, so here's what happened. It's basically, I recorded a one hour long uh, review of me just talking about the amazing book uh, Masters of Doom by David Kushner. Uh, I listened to the audiobook by the fantastic Will Wheaton of Tabletop and Star Trek Next Generation fame, where he does a fantastic job uh, reading this book about John Romero, John Carmack, and the people around id Software who not only released the computer game sensations of Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, Quake, and all of the sequels and manifestations, but completely completely changed how the computer gaming industry was viewed, how it was approached, how games were developed, how games were released, many successes, many failures, but ultimately revolutionized the entire process. And I love this book, and it's an amazing book. What I realized was, I knew I was going to be interviewing my dad later on. So I finished the full review, and then a day or so later, I got my dad on for 30-35 minutes, and I was going to insert it in the middle of the review that I had already done. But after I recorded my father, and I listened to it, and I listened to my review, I realized that a lot of the great uh, stories I was relaying better to my father than I was doing on my own, even in shortened version. And I was leaving out some of the stuff that I found interesting, but may not be as interesting to other people. And it's something that I, I, I've been debating with my dad for a long time now, and he, you know, refuses to believe uh, because of his faith in me. God bless him. But I truly feel, which is, I just do better when I'm talking with other people. And so the point of this entire Bizzlecast book review series the knowledge drop, if you will, was to bring in other people to discuss books that we've read or, you know, subjects of great importance, which we would bring in books, articles, and so forth to talk about. And so I said, screw it. I am never one to worry about ditching something I've recorded. I've recorded dozens of podcasts, specifically movie commentaries that were good, but not good enough to release. I couldn't get excited enough to release. And so it is in this spirit that I am going to jump immediately into after this great music by talk with my father in which I reference a review that I'm never releasing because I don't want you to spend 90 minutes listening to something that you can get in 30 in a better way in my talk with Papa Bizzle and future reviews will be done with other people as well or maybe I'll release the secondary material as secondary material at a later point so if you hear me referencing things in this interview that never happened it's because I am only releasing this interview with my dad who understands where 
my love of both gaming and computers comes from. I hope you guys enjoy this. I'm actually really excited about this series, even though I cut out two-thirds of the first episode. I have a big smile on my face about that as a longtime music and audio producer, now somewhat longtime podcaster. It actually puts a smile on my face. As Steve Jobs often said, when it came to the minimalism of uh, the Apple products and the Mac products, is that it does much, if not more so, about what you leave out than by what you put in there. And, and I feel very much that way. So enjoy this talk with my dad. Expect a sort of 1.5 episode at some point about this topic, but go ahead and read Masters of Doom because these guys were hilarious. You know, exactly the guys you would think would boot the computer gaming revolution into full swing in all its twisted glory. I'm going to dedicate this one to Total Biscuit and, of course, my dad and my entire family. And here we go. All right, guys. Well, a time for the promised interlude with Papa Bizzle and this very first Bizzlecast book review, which I'm still coming up with a name for. Uh, so for now, it's just the Bizzlecast book review. But I wanted to bring my dad in uh, because he uh, was not only there from the beginning, but got me my first computer at a very young age, always encouraged my love and interest in computers, um, and it is a topic until technology in general that we uh, love talking about even today. So we're going to talk a little bit about computers in my childhood. We're going to talk a little bit about Wolfenstein, which is the next section of this podcast once Papa Bizzle gets off and, and uh, the id software guys going into superstardom. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about violence in video games. And if we have time, we'll talk a little bit about sort of the psychology of tech culture. But first, Papa Bizzle, thank you for jumping on for this uh, short, little, but important interlude. Well, thanks for the invite. I'm really excited about your new project, uh, doing the book review, so I'm glad to be here for the maiden voyage. So as I said um, at the the beginning of the book review, Dad, um, there's this sort of line from me getting back into board gaming and then discovering Will Wheaton's tabletop and then uh, that also leading me back into video games and the YouTube and Felicia Day. I mean, there's like a direct line and and it just happened that the first audio book that I really got into was Will Wheaton reading uh, this book, Masters of Doom, and the fascinating story behind and the guys who not only designed Wolfenstein, Doom, and so forth, but revolutionized both the hardware and software behind computer games, but the way computer games were made and thought about and treated and so forth in society. But before we get there, I do want to tell the story really quickly about how you surprised me big time on my seventh birthday in 1988, along with um, uh, my best friend Joel, um, uh, his dad, uh, Jess. Uh, you guys decided to get us Apple II GS, which was a major improvement over the original Apple II. Had been out just a couple years, but in terms of interface power, and was really designed for kids in school and so forth. Um, and we talked a little bit off mic uh, last night about this, but really quickly, love to just uh, let the Bizzlecast listeners in on what that decision-making process was in terms of why this early in life, why we were ready to handle it, why Apple. Whatever you can remember. I know it was a long time ago. Right. I'll go back even a little bit farther than that because there's computer, uh, sort of computer developmental context for me, too. When I was in graduate school, um, I I was working on mainframes, doing my research on mainframes using punch cards. Mm -hmm. So 
my exposure to computers goes all the way back to shoeboxes full full of punch cards. And then late in, in the 70s, uh, you know, the PC started to show up and you had to be kind of DOS uh, conversant. And it became, when, when the 2GS came out, it was so obvious for someone like me who had been through these horrendous user interface experiences right. in, in, in the early days with computers, it just seemed like a, a no-brainer to get for your, your seven-year-old precocious child um, because of the, uh, you know, sort of the wonderment of this, this new GUI that Apple came up with. Yeah, and the Apple 2GS, again, released in 86, uh, produced until 92 or 93. It came out either... I got past that point in the Steve Jobs book. They really didn't talk about it. So I think it actually came out slightly after he left, although mm. he was instrumental in the Macintosh and the Apple II and so forth. Um, and something we'll have to table for another time is the full circle aspect of starting with an Apple and how much better they were in those days in terms of interface, and then, for various reasons, going to PCs for a while. But then you guys, for my graduation um present bought me a uh apple a macbook or or ibook i guess they were called yeah yeah ibook right (laughs) almost exactly 20 years after you got me a a, a 2gs and dad it's not an understatement to say since you bought me that ibook every single product we've bought in our family has been an apple product since then that's right yeah um, and it's because Steve Jobs left and they lost their way and they brought him back and all the elegance and as crazy as he is and he is fucking psychotic and narcissistic. You guys should read the Steve Jobs book. I'm going to do a podcast about it. Nevertheless, when it comes to design and elegance and beauty and simplicity, he's the best. And it's, mm-hmm. it, it, it's no surprise that Apple is now one of the most valuable companies in the world again. Um, yeah. because they went back to basics basically. Um, so it, it was a great experience using the Apple II. I have very fond memories. Um, there were some cool games, but it was just playing around with it in general that was super fun. But eventually, for various reasons, we, we decided to migrate over to PCs. Part of it was I just wanted to do more computer gaming. You guys were very strict and smart to not bring consoles into the house. And so if I was going to do computer gaming, I needed to have a PC. Um, but it had a nice side benefit of even though DOS was just incredibly archaic. It, it you know it, it really educated me about computers as you remember. I modded my own computers as a kid. You know, yeah, adding stuff yeah. to it. Uh, we even when I got viruses, I would find ways to get out of the virus, and you know, and, and uh, I, I was never like a hacker, like actually hacking things, but I was very into encryption and just reading and learning about hacking culture and stuff. So it was a great experience. By the end of college, it was clear the PC was causing more problems than than uh, than sol- than solutions, uh, and so we went back to Mac. But in 1992, uh, you came across a, a shareware game called Wolfenstein 3D, which was the first of its kind. And as I mentioned at some point in my podcast, Dad, which I've already recorded the whole thing, Bizzlecast listeners, that might have been the first and last computer game you ever really played. Uh, that's pr- probably true, until I started to you know, uh, mess around a little bit on my phone with some games way, 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 way later, my, my Apple uh, mm-hmm. phone. But yes, that's probably right. I mean, you you would sit in when I was playing Mist and stuff like that. Yes, yeah, right. Yes, I I, I would look over your shoulder and 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 yeah, join you in some of that, right? 
Yeah, and this you know civilization, the strategy games you, you yeah. appreciated. Of course, the flight simulators were way too nauseating, so you weren't going to watch that. Um, right. But um, you know, one of the points I made, Dad, was even though these shooters revolutionized all of computer gaming, in addition to inventing the first-person shooter genre, I've never been a first-person shooter guy. Um, and so while I know a lot about the development of, of strategy companies like Blizzard and, uh, you know, like, like the Lucas, uh, film video games and so forth, a lot of this was new to me with, with, with Masters of Doom with, uh, the, the two Johns as they call them, um, uh, John uh, Carmack and, and John Romero. So my two-part question about Wolfenstein to get this going, um, mm-hmm. and again, as I've been mentioning my podcast, I've discovered the best way to keep these discussions going quickly and have me shut up is to just h- get some one-hit questions going. But this mm-hmm. is a two-parter. A, did you realize when you were playing the game that it was, if not revolutionary, then something really, really new? And B, did you ever have a worry that me as an 11 or 12-year-old, it, it, it would be something negative for me to experience? Right. So in terms of the uh, the former question, yeah, it was very apparent um, that this almost... 3D um, first-person game where, where, you know, it's like you're the, you're kind of in the game in, in, in a virtual reality kind of way. It was a huge departure from anything. So because of that, you know, the the visual innovation of, 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 the, of the virtual 3D, the, the, the nearly full 3D, I mean, it was, it was, it was kind of mesmerizing. And uh, even though it was gratuitously violent, it was just so interesting as, as, as a new phenomenon. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't really want to ignore it. And because it was based around killing true bad guys, yep. Nazis, then I felt, well, you know, uh, what's what's the big deal if you uh, mm-hmm. if you get exposed to it? But it's funny. I think I remember that Brian, who who brought the game over, Brian Dooner, who brought the game over. He 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 wanted to give me full control over whether I wanted to expose you to it or, or not. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And I remember seeing it and being like, "Holy shit! I had never experienced anything like that." Um, and, you know, the big three from id Software was Wolfenstein, which was more illusory 3D. I mean, the environments were mostly 3D, the, the sprites were, were 2D. Doom was sort of 3D mixed with 2.5D. And then Quake, uh, which became the first major multiplayer shooter, which informs all the big shooters now from Fortnite to Call of Duty, etc., etc., was the first truly 3D game. Um, uh, down the road, but Wolfenstein was certainly the one that started it all. Um, I did want to bring up shareware very briefly, uh, because this was not, uh, um, limited to the id software games. Um, and now, you know, with the PlayStation Network, I can download a demo for free. And if I like it, I can pay for and download the full game and keep my progress and so forth. This was sort of the physical version of it where you yeah. can basically get the first couple levels for free and play them over and over again. And if you really liked it and you had the money, you could buy the, the, the full thing, which was really a revolutionary uh, model in the early 90s. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was a. It was a brand new business model that uh, nobody had seen before. So that was pretty fascinating as as well. So I, I've I've I, I tell this story elsewhere on the podcast, but I have to. And I might have even told you this before, Dad, but I have to repeat it because it's so 
emblematic of these maverick, brilliant mavericks. So Romero and Carmack both came from broken families in the middle of the country. I mean, they were nobodies. Carmack had an okay family, but then the divorce and it was ugly. And he went to University of Colorado for a year and the computer classes. He called insulting how easy they were and how stupid the rest of the kids were. And so he left. Romero hmm. didn't even try it. And, and just by coincidence, they ended up at this shareware company that was pretty revolutionary, even though it wasn't run great, called Softdisk, and of all places, Shreveport, Louisiana. <clears throat> hmm. And basically, uh, it was the first subscription service. You'd pay nine ninety five a month, and you would get a disc full of utilities and some games. So, be like yeah. calculators, balancing your checkbook, but you'd yeah. get some funny games. You remember this stuff? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the guy that ran it, that who went by the name Big Al, who also happened to be like a slumlord and kind of a sketchy businessman, but he was brilliant in this model and pioneering this model. Went from a couple thousand subscribers to like hundreds of thousands very quickly he happened to get romero and carmack from different parts of the country and some of their friends all at the same time but what happened was they were so much better programmers just in general than the people who are designing all the utilities that he basically tried to force them to make both games and utilities and they did not want to make utilities Mm. uh and so they uh, uh, tentatively agreed to it but what did they do a Friday night? They claimed they were staying late every Friday night. As soon as a Big Al and everyone left the office, they opened the windows and they took all the computers out of their offices, hoisted them down, put them in cars and trucks, drove them out to the beach house where the lake house where Carback was living and spent all 48 hours, no sleep every weekend designing their own games on Big Al's computers without his permission. And when he finally found out, he he didn't, couldn't come down on them that hard because he was, they were all he had going for for them. (laughs) And so they came to a tentative agreement where he would let them use the computers with his knowledge to design the games as long as they did some utilities, which they could do with their eyes closed, basically. But eventually it just became untenable. They started designing Wolfenstein. They signed with Apogee, who was a distributor, and they went off and did their own thing. Um, and they basically became giant rock stars from there. Um, so Wolfenstein put them on the map. Doom was the game that really elevated them to rock star status, going from hundreds of thousands to millions of sales. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and what's interesting, Dad, is, you know, this began the debate of violence in video games, obviously. Right. But right. when you listen to the book and you listen to the interview, even though they're a little twisted, uh, they're not twisted in the violent sense. Um, and, and they, the, the, the part of why they wanted so much graphic violence was the challenge of pulling it off because no one had done it before. So, like, they wanted heads and limbs flying everywhere, not just because it entertained them and it was entertaining to play and watch, but because it was such a ginormous challenge. Right. Um, and the other big story was, uh, you know, because at this point, you know, PC and uh, console games were very separate. Um, they wanted to pitch Nintendo on doing conversions of Nintendo games to PCs, which, by the way, Nintendo still doesn't do today. Huh. And they, uh, Super Mario Brothers 3, which was considered 
considered the best game uh, on the console at the time. They reverse engineered by watching the entire Super Mario Brothers 3 and coding it based on looks. Oh my god. For the PC and they sent it to Miyamoto who's the president of Nintendo still today. Uh, and he didn't sue them to his credit because they didn't try and sell it, but he was like, sorry, we're not interested in the PC market. But they wow. used that to start developing their own skills and going wow. on. What a story. Uh, yeah. Um, and so uh, I have one more personal question, and then I want to talk a little bit about the industry, and we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, uh-huh. uh, so... Um, uh, so again, you know, you weren't worried about me killing Nazis. Right. I wasn't even that into Doom and Quake. I mean, I played the shareware versions, but I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I ended up really liking Call of Duty later in life because of how it simulated World War II, more for story reasons than anything else. But yeah, the just yeah. like killing zombies, like, you know, me, I was into strategy, role playing, you know, games and stuff like that, uh, yeah. more so. But, but, you know, obviously I was playing those those levels uh in those games they invented dynamic lighting and different colored lighting and actually moving the gun up and down and i mean everything that you you've got today um but uh I, I, again we we talked about this off mic but i want to tell you bisslecast listeners so you know i really got into computers even more heavily and gaming in middle school where you know i didn't wasn't having the best experience i wasn't failing but i wasn't doing great but then i went to high school and i you know it was getting a's but i was still playing a ton of computer games was there ever i know that you guys are never worried about the maturity issue of the violence but was there ever a point where where you guys were like he's playing too many computer games we need to cut back on this no um not at all i mean we didn't have the challenges uh the uh the, the digital challenges back then of um social media i mean the the uh the dark side of social media kind of challenges for for parents well we i was on we social media by the way i was communicating nightly on aol with total strangers but just not in creepy i was like doing it was like star wars nerd chat rooms right so there was never anything that to us felt like was going to threaten your your development your child you know your your development mm-hmm. so yeah. we, we we were fine with it because it was it was a challenging medium for you and um you know it's it's we were pretty comfortable with it yeah, I think the thing you'd be less comfortable with knowing in the past was that I was staying up on the internet till two or three in the morning every single night and not right. not sleeping. Well, that's a whole other issue. But yeah. I, I feel like there was a tacit agreement, um, and we'll stop on the personal stuff, once I got to high school and started getting really good grades, which was... Yes, I would come home and play TIE Fighter for two, three hours straight before dinner, but as long as I was doing my homework, getting good grades, not doing drugs, and being a responsible young adult, you really, not only did you not give me a hard time, but you recognized the smart games that I was playing, like the role-playing games, like the strategy games, and actually encouraged me to play games like StarCraft and so forth, because you recognized they were much smarter than the shooters and stuff. Right. I mean, because you did so well in school, we, we, we never had a concern about your, your, your avocational interest in your bedroom. Yeah. And by the time I hit 11th grade and, you know, girls in social life started kicking in, you know, I didn't really start gaming again until many years later. 
Um, but I certainly learned so much from, from those years of, uh, of computer. And, um, just to bring it back around, you know, you bought me that iBook as a graduation present 2005, but ultimately my, you know, my music career and my podcasting and everything I've done wouldn't have been possible without Max. So before I ask you one or two quick social questions and we'll wrap up. What is your sort of perspective? I won't ask you about Steve Jobs psychology. I'll wait till you listen to the audiobook or whatever. But what what is your sort of perspective about about Max and PCs over the year years and why even though most computers on the planet by number have windows on them when it comes to I I mean people don't even call them tablets and smartphones. They call them iPhones and iPads. Um, what, 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 so let me ask, so, you know, you remember when they, in the late nineties, they released the first boxy IMAX, the single screen units that all the schools got, you know, when Steve Jobs was back. Mm-hmm. And then the the beautiful laptops, you know, my my boy Dave All back in 2002 was producing professional music on a laptop, a Mac laptop. Of course, we got iPods, iPhones, iPads. Uh, from your perspective, where did the the cultural shift uh, kind of move back towards Apple? Just totally from your perspective in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years definitively well you know for for me i mean i always recognized that uh, the apple products were superior to um to the pc stuff but as, as a business guy i needed i was forced to buy you know many iterations of pcs from dell computer because the software applications we needed to run would only run on on pc so i mean while i always lusted over uh, having a Mac, I, you know, I, I wish that we could use Macs, and uh, but I never could do it because it was just too, too impractical. They just didn't have the mm-hmm. the applications that we needed to run our our business, both back office wise and in terms of like the testing that that we did and our management consulting with with our mm-hmm. people we were coaching and developing and stuff. So mm-hmm. um, it was it was that really for me, but I think maybe maybe. The the uh, um, the the generalized answer is related to maybe my own personal experience is that once Apple was able to to run a much much broader spectrum of applications, um, people didn't feel that they they were they were buying into a, a limited platform and and they had the kind of choices that that they that they needed. I think it was always. I mean, people always recognize that they wish they could use it personally and and or in business, but mm-hmm. they were constrained because they're always just just orders of magnitude more software applications for the PC for, for many years, mm-hmm. and then it, it it gradually shifted. So, one of the most interesting anecdotes, and we'll stop with Mac um, and wrap this up. One of the most interesting anecdotes that from the Steve Jobs uh, book is. Even in the very beginning when they were working on the first Apple, he insisted that even the motherboards look beautiful, even though no one would ever see them other than tech support people. He insisted he didn't even want fans in the computer because they were ugly. He's obsessed with uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, architecture, modern art. I mean, he's obsessed Mm -hmm. with design. 
Um, and by the way, id Software, the Wolfenstein guys have a very similar thing where John Carmack was the sort of uh, was uh, programmer, mm. brains, nuts mm. and bolts guy. Uh, and Romero was the flashy PR, but also design uh, aesthetic guy. And it worked really great with the two of them. The difference was Jobs was always the alpha male in uh, Apple, whereas uh, Carmack, even though he's the oh. programmer, was the alpha male and eventually kicked out Romero for not oh. carrying his own weight um, in uh, uh, its software. Um, but there's something about, you know, people say, oh, you know, Apple's all about style and form and PCs are all about function. But our experience has been that Max function has been better in addition to the style. Oh, by, by far, yeah. by far. I mean, it's just so much more user-friendly in, in, in so many, many ways. And, um, I, you know, PCs never really got o- over their kludginess, in, in, in my view. Uh, so it's always been stunning to me that that company, Microsoft, has been as successful as, as, as they've been. I wish in all the hours of the audiobook they talked more about Bill and Steve. Maybe yeah. it's coming, but uh-huh. they did work together a lot early on. But the big split was Steve Jobs basically made an agreement with uh, Bill Gates that they would share some things, but the GUI, the graphical user interface, would be exclusive to Mac for a year, and then... Window and then Bill Gates could attempt Windows. The problem was that first Mac GUI was delayed by a year, and so Bill Gates was within his legal rights to release at the same time the first version of Windows. But Steve Jobs never really forgave him because of, he's irrational. But yeah. Bill Gates also, you know, doesn't have scruples when it comes to business necessarily. Um, right, right. Bill Gates saw Steve Jobs as a narcissistic egomaniac, which he is. Yeah. Um, but Steve Jobs. Kind Kind of saw Bill Gates as a simpleton with, um, you know, a limited uh, intellectual brain span. You know, I mean, Steve Jobs openly experimented with LSD and drugs and Eastern philosophy, and yeah. he would ask people in interviews about that stuff. Like it was important to him that people had experimented, which is the opposite of Bill Gates, who's probably never taken a drag of a cigarette in his life or anything. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and I think Bill Gates is serving much better as a humanitarian. I mean, God bless them. Uh, you know, one of the things I always defend Gates over Jobs is the humanitarian stuff. Um, and uh, you guys can read the Steve Jobs book. So, okay, two final questions and we'll wrap up. First question, do you buy that vi- violence in video games has anything to do causationally with violence in our culture? Oh, that, that's a tough question. Um I think I think uh, for for vulnerable children from from vulnerable families, it, it it's it's possible that it could have some some effect. Uh, I mean, even, I, if, even if they're getting beaten by their dads and their dads happen to have guns lying all over the place. Oh, I, I, I see, see what you're saying. Well, it's just I like mean, the it's, Columbine kids, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it just adds insult to injury and probably increases the probability some mm. um, that they're they're going to find a, a, a violent outlets. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the the parental treatment is, is you know way overshadows exposure to mm-hmm. of violent media. 
I, I think the damning point here, there's clearly correlation, but I don't think there's causation because Call of Duty in these games sell just as well in Japan and Europe as here, and there are very few mass shootings in those countries. So Yeah, that, yeah that, that's, that's a great thought experiment, actually, right, yeah. to, to prove the point. And, and, you know, guys, just to tease my review of Console Wars, which Ethan is reading right now, even in the early 90s, Joseph Lieberman was going after Nintendo and Sega for much less uh, egregious offenses like Mortal Kombat and the fake blood and so forth. Uh, so this was an argument going on throughout the 90s, and now we're seeing it happen again. I think it's interesting... The Republicans are quick to blame video games and basically anything other than you know, right-wing culture and gun culture for gun violence. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, because this is that's a, a difficult conversation, but I think we can agree it's at least more correlational than causational. Yes. Yeah. As most things are. Okay, final question. And thank you, Bubba Bizzle. This was awesome. Um, and then, guys, we're going to jump right into the discussion of Wolfenstein 3D and the uh, rocketing of Carmack, uh, Romero, and company into superstardom, which is you and I are both fascinated by and highly respectful of the tech geniuses as, you know, as... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, as spectrumy as they can seem at times, like Zuckerberg, for example. <laughs> right, right, um, right. As completely socially inept, like Larry Page, or as eccentric as Elon Musk, who sometimes seems like a charlatan and then develops the next big thing, seemingly. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is it about these tech geniuses? Now, I'll put out the first one because we talked about this, which is from Jobs to Musk to Zuckerberg to Page to Bezos, as rich as they are, money was never the driving factor in what motivated them. Right. So, um, you know, I I draw a parallel between these tech geniuses and, and and scientists i think that there's a there's an intellectual challenge that totally and profoundly engages their their minds mm. and probably the you know one of the one of the highest manifestations of it would be in 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 in, in jobs or or musk perhaps and uh, at the other end of the spectrum we have this genius plotter plotter p-l-o-d-d-e-r um in bill gates mm -hmm. i mean he's he's a genius but he's a plotter and his and his software is pedestrian and there's nothing beautiful about it not, nothing elegant about it but true scientists which is you know jobs is both an artist and a scientist but but real scientists love elegance and you know in their theories and in in what what they're pursuing elegance and and, and beauty so I, I see them as very closely uh, parallel to scientists um mount everest is out there and they 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 want to scale it, whatever they've defined as their Mount Everest. And again, I would direct people back to me and Papa Bizzle's post-analysis and discussion of The Martian with Rich exactly. Purnell, played by Donald Glover, God bless him. And you described him as having a, quote, heroic brain, uh huh, which... 
you could just say like it's a genetic thing, but it wasn't just that he had a massive brain. It was the heroic things he was doing with his brain. Yes. And sciencing the shit out of things. And yep. that's what was so wonderful about that movie is it's shown a spotlight, yes, on NASA and JPL, but the science community in general and how driven they are to improve for the most part. I mean, even Oppenheimer and Einstein and the people who are directly or indirectly responsible for the atomic bomb, they weren't really going after that initially. No, no, it, it, it was, it was a Mount Everest, um, uh, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? It was a Mount Everest thing for for them too. I mean they 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 weren't interested in 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 in, in blowing up people and, and and melting and incinerating people. I mean it was just there was this subatomic you know Mount Everest thing that they that they wanted to uh, to uh, domesticate. And Oppenheimer was tormented for his entire life. I wonder when we're getting that movie and who's going to play him, because that's an amazing story. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Um, But I just want to point out, Facebook came out my senior year of Wesleyan, which was 2004-2005, and it was in beta. And because we were an elite Northeast uh, liberal arts college, we were one of a few dozen colleges to be initially on Facebook. So... I was definitely not on the Twitter bandwagon early, but I was definitely on the Facebook bandwagon early, mm-hmm. uh, which is why I could get JF Brenner, you know, facebook.com slash JF Brenner. Right. I could have gotten Jesse Brenner, but I decided to go for JF Brenner. And of course, I have the Bizzle cast. Zuckerberg's three years younger than me. Um, uh, and, you know, he's come under fire for privacy reasons and so forth. But I, I, I don't know, Dad. I mean, just on, on a quick political note, I still think that whole thing, him getting dragged before Congress and the EU, was a smokescreen for the even much scarier NSA and so forth stuff going on. Huh. Because at least with Facebook, I know I'm giving them my information, and I can see the information I'm giving them. The NSA, I have no idea. (laughs) Right, right, right. So what's what's the way forward? Because, you know, I work with Ethan, who's in community college, but he wants to get in the tech world ASAP. Bill Gates didn't graduate. Steve Jobs didn't graduate. John Carmack didn't graduate. John Romero didn't even go to school. I mean, none of these guys went to school or graduated. Yeah. So what does that say? This will be my very final question, and I really appreciate you being on. What does that say about our higher education system that some of the most brilliant tech minds in particular, but even scientists, you know, like, I mean, let's put it this way. Like, like JPL scientists have to go to school to get a degree, but the, right. their brilliance is there no matter what. What does that say about our education system? Well, I'm not sure it does. I mean, again, it's. I think you're. It's a correlational thing that that's going on here, and it, it may not. It may not be causal in that there's something about um, hardware and software, but but particularly software, that it seems to be um, especially. Uh, open to self to, you know to self teaching like these kids start teaching it to themselves when they're like 11 12 they're earlier and earlier now 13 14 um so it it's i think it's a it's a discipline in which you can sidestep higher education if if you're really gifted uh doctors can't sidestep higher education scientists for the most part can't sidestep higher education 
um, and lots of different and engineers can't. Mm-hmm. But this is one area in which I think it's for whatever reason particularly open to um, self teaching. Yeah, I mean, when you open that DOS prompt, it's a black screen that says C colon backslash, and that's it. Yeah, right. Um, and just as a final personal anecdote, you know, I mean, obviously you know, but Bizzlecast listeners, I ended up going to Wesleyan to study philosophy, music, history, English, religion, and a lot of different things. I just ended up studying religion and philosophy in a graduate level. But Dad, I was seriously considering astrophysics at right. Cornell. Right, And I was reading very complicated books by Kip Thorne and so forth about the wormholes and black holes and, you know, Brian Greene and the hidden universe and string theory. Um, and I, 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 I wonder what the correlation is between my fascination with computer technology and science and, and philosophy and, and religion. Well, I, I don't know if there is. I mean, um, you know, I think that uh, you're, you're lucky in that you the, both sides of your brain are, are pretty are pretty potent, and you were fairly gifted mathematically, but it never meant much to you, and you didn't you weren't really drawn to uh, to using that part of, of your brain, the math part, the science part. Um, hmm. And you you had these other areas of talent that seemed to to really you know, touch you more at an emotional level uh, than math or science. Yeah, and, you know, I think it goes without saying that when you bring in things like The Matrix and Ghost in the Shell, mm-hmm. uh, the, the intersection of mathematics, cosmology, philosophy, religion is, is something I wish was explored more. Um, and I think that's the connection. But yeah, you're right. I mean, if I had been as passionate about math and science as I was about the other subjects, I, I, you know, I could have totally seen it. Um, yeah, you, you, you very well might have ended up at, at yeah. Cornell. I mean, you got accepted there, so you, you might have gone that path. But you seem to to recognize very early that even though your your math skills were really strong, um, it, it never never floated your boat really. And and to end this, I think this is exactly why STEM and liberal arts subjects need to be promoted equally in schools for this exact reason. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you are a big. You and mom were a big reason behind all of this that I even had these options and and had all this stuff. Yeah. So thank you, Papa Bizzle. This was great. Hope welcome. To, hope to have you on again. Uh, as I told you earlier, I'm about wrapping up the Wonder Woman podcast. Finally, it's in a lot great. of sections, uh, and there's a lot of me and you just marveling at the movie, which oh, yeah. it deserves. Totally. Um, and so thank you for being on. And uh, I don't know how I'm going to do this transition, guys, but I'm about to jump into the uh, the the rocket blast of id software onto another level with Wolfenstein and Doom. So thank you, Papa Bizzle. Thanks, Jess. <laughs> 